I am Amy Antonucci, and I'm here to introduce our show to you tonight. This is our True Tales Live show coming to you from Portsmouth Public Media TV, Channel 98 in New Hampshire. We want to thank everyone watching, watching the show, everyone listening, and especially we want to thank our audience. Give yourself Our mission at True Tales Live is to provide a space for people to tell their first-person experience stories, stories that reflect our community, its personal and cultural diversity, and help us to connect across differences and around similarities and build understanding and respect. Well, we encourage the development of storytelling skills through our monthly workshops and other assistance we give to tellers. This is not a competition. We have no ranking or scoring or judging tonight at all. We're really here because we believe that stories shared from the heart uplift and bind us and inspire us, and that is our mission. So tonight, the theme of our show is losses. This is something we can all relate to and connect with, and we will hear a number of people speaking to the theme. Tonight we have Emily Spaulding, Beth Tenner, Tom Osberg, Kate Braun, and Andy Davis. Each has a 10-minute limit for telling their story. David Frainer will come up and introduce each person to you before they get up. And at the very end, David will also interview one of tonight's tellers, Beth Tenner, tonight, a little preview. Um, but before that, of course, we have the story, so let's welcome David up here to start the show. When Emily Spaulding starts talking, you know by her accent that she didn't grow up around here. But she did write and publish her first book here. Between watching fishing trawlers, tugboats, and cargo ships maneuvering the tides of the Piscataqua River, Emily wrote Red Clay Girl, a memoir about a country girl who wants to leave the South to become worldly and sophisticated. Her writing journey has led her to understand that self-acceptance is what sophistication is really about. There's nothing more fun than sharing and hearing other people's stories, she says. But be careful what you tell me, because you might wind up in my next book. <laughs> Tonight she'll share her story titled, Lost and Found. Well, I hope we don't Alabama you out. <laughs> the woman ahead of me and now, but uh, surely the others will not have the same accent. The secret name of my story is Woulda, Coulda, Shoulda. I wish that I had stayed in touch with family and friends while I still could and while they were still alive. I know I should have done that, and I've regretted it ever since. It was 1963, and my husband and I were just married, there he is, and we were going down for Christmas to Washington, D.C. to see my sister. We were driving from Brooklyn, yes, I married a Yankee boy, and my parents were coming up from Alabama, and we got there, and all we did the whole Christmas week, besides opening the presents, was tell stories, and everybody had a different story, old stories, new stories, and finally, it seemed really fast, it was time to say goodbye. Now, I need to tell you that Southerners do not shake hands when they say goodbye, and they don't do a high five. <laughs> we hugged. Well, my daddy was my go-to person. He hugged me like usual, but then he kept hugging me, and hugging me, and I said, Daddy, what is wrong? And he said, Toots, I am just saying goodbye. And I was wondering, is he saying goodbye, goodbye? 
forever, or is this? No, he's too young. He's just saying goodbye. See you soon. Well, it was Memorial Day, five months later, and he was going out to his tree farm in Low Topoka, Alabama. And he, there's something called kudzu there. What is kudzu? That is a vine that if you stand still for too long, it will go right over you and smother you. <laughs> well, my daddy was uh, thinking about his loblolly pine trees and he sold them for timber, and he didn't want that to happen to them. That's what he was thinking about. So he went out with his sprayer and his truck, and they had taken over everything, and he probably did it a little too long. But he died, and he was 59. And since that time, I've been trying to think of questions that I really should ask him. And the first one was... He grew up in Indian Territory, which later became Oklahoma. Did you know that? And he loved anything to do with Native Americans. And so when I was 12, every single Sunday, we would go out to Lochapoca, which is where an Indian name, and we would look for arrowheads. And you would always look near the creek, because that's where they camped, and that's where they would drop things. And I was 12, and, you know, after about a half an hour, I'd be getting a little restless, and we'd find some pottery and maybe a grinding stone. And I said, Daddy, I'm ready to go home. And he said, no, no, no. He said, there's a special spot over here you should look. <clears throat> and uh, so I always did what he said, so I went over there, and I was like, okay. And there, just lying there, was this beautiful arrowhead. Now, we, I wish I could ask, have asked them then, and I've been wondering ever since, did that happen to find it fall out of a hole in his pocket? <laughs> or maybe he just dropped it there? Well, we found so many Indian uh, relics that he built a museum in our, in our backyard where we kept them all. And I was the happiest person in the world. Well... It was uh, Memorial Day, and uh, it was a time for, uh, let's see, no. So there were a lot of uh, questions that I didn't ask my daddy, and and Memorial Day is when I was thinking about. And uh, one of the questions that I really would have asked him is, nobody in his family went to college. They lived in the Texas panhandle. And what who convinced him that he should go to college and get his, a Ph.D. in plant diseases? Now, I don't think it was his mother who dipped snuff and spit it in uh, the juice in a, in a can, but she did say to me, I love your daddy. I call him son, and that is spelled S-U-N. No, it's not misspelled. He is the sun in my sky. You know, he was the sun in my sky, too. Well, and another question I would ask him, and this was kind of funny, is he took a boxcar when he was getting his master's from Texas all the way to Arkansas. And what he would do is he would stow away, have you heard of that in a boxcar? And if the train man didn't find you, you were fine, and you just look out the slats to see where your destination was. Well, he would always do that. And this particular time, he fell asleep, and when he woke up, he was back farther in Texas than he had started because the train had gone on the side and had gone backwards. So he didn't have time and want to risk it again, so he said he hitchhiked all the rest of the way. And what I wonder is, the, did the professor say to him, honest to goodness, that's the best excuse I ever heard. <laughs> but late is late. Don't be late again. Or I like to think in my mind... The professor said, you have really gone to a lot of trouble to come here. Would you like to recommend you for uh, your Ph.D. at Washington? And I like to think, don't you believe that that must have been what happened? (laughs) I wish I would have asked sooner, but when I could have, I should have. Well, and the other thing that I have been doing is I have a plan so that this won't happen, any of this won't happen to me again. 
And the first plan is, Dick and I, know there are 12 people in our family. How did that happen? We got, go on a vacation together. There are three daughters and their husbands and the four grandchildren. And you know what we do when we're walking and looking at things? We try to go, I try to pick someplace where cell phones don't work. <laughs> we were just in New Zealand. And the whole time we told stories. Now, the grandchildren talked about sports the whole time. And I don't know what the girls and I talked about. Dick talked about sports, too, I think. But every time I hear a story, I write it down. So be careful, like you said, what you tell me. Anyway, my other plan is I'm calling up all of my high school and college and work and neighbors who moved away, and I'm asking them questions so I won't miss out on hearing what they have to say and say, I wish I would have. Now, let's see. Now, for instance, let me show you. This is Tuesday, and it's about 7 o'clock, and I am supposed to call my cousin Walter in Wisconsin, where my mother came from. Excuse me. <laughs> Hello, Walter. This is Emily. No, 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 no. This is not the wrong number. This is Emily, you know, from Georgia and Alabama, and now New Hampshire. No, I'm not dead. <laughs> no, it really is me. Do you remember? Yeah, me too. Now, Walter, I've got some really special people here, so I'm going to have to call you back in the morning, okay? Okay. Bye. Well, so my plan is all those things that I have lost, the opportunities I've lost... I don't ever, ever want to have to say again, I wish I would have, when I could have. I know I should Very nicely done. <clears throat> Beth Tenner lives in Portsmouth and works as a facilitator of social and environmental change. By hosting conversations that matter, Beth encourages collaboration among diverse groups in order to deal with complex challenges. While she's had plenty of experience speaking publicly in front of groups, sharing a personal story is new. Soon after Beth moved, to the seacoast, she had a profound experience of loss, which was also a profound experience of love. She has written a memoir about it, and this is a story from it. It's her first time doing storytelling anywhere, and she's doing it on our stage. Her story is, story is titled, I See You. Welcome her warmly. It was love at first phone call. Soon after 9-11 in 2001, Rick and I were introduced by a mutual friend, and our first phone call lasted an hour and a half. I was drawn in learning that he had been in musical theater, and he wrote music, and now he was a food scientist and taught grad school. He was taking a glass-blowing class, and he loved to cook, and he asked me lots of questions, and he really listened. Our second call lasted four hours, if you can believe that, with a bathroom break in the middle. <laughs> our, we had four dates in the first week. So on our third date, I was sitting in his kitchen, sitting on a stool, watching him as he expertly cooked me this homemade soup. And I was feeling so attracted to him, I was thinking, I really want to say I love you. But I've only met this person three times. I really can't say that. And I kind of held back. And my previous relationship of nine years was full of a dynamic of ambivalence and doubt. And it kind of took us years to say, I love you. So this felt pretty different. And then Rick took a break from preparing dinner. And he came over and he just spontaneously hugged me and gave me this big kiss. And he looked right at me and he said, Beth, I love you. 
And he looked surprised, <laughs> and I said it too. Um, so with the intensity of our connection, I sensed how easy it would be to lose myself in this relationship because I can tend to want to please others and rise to their expectations. But Rick really set this different kind of uh, intention and pattern. So he was often asking me, like, what do you need? And how's your heart? And he, he often asked me questions about my work and was super excited about how each day went every time I had a big workshop or meeting. How'd it go? So he really um, helped me know myself even better. Uh, and we got into a pattern of really showering each other with appreciation and expressing how much things we liked about each other more than criticism. So at one point he said to me, I see my role in this lifetime as helping you be as Beth as you can be. So in 2005, about four years after we met, uh, that intensity of love had not faded. And we decided to build a house together. That was always Rick's dream, and we were able to get some land in the woods out in Nottingham, New Hampshire. So we got deep into house plans. I, working in the environmental field, wanted it as green as possible with passive solar and non-toxic materials. Rick wanted a creative studio and a high ceilings and an outdoor pizza oven. <laughs> uh, what we did not plan on was cancer. So a few weeks after we had the foundation in the ground, we learned that Rick had a tumor in his kidney. Uh, so in November of 05, he had surgery to remove the kidney, and the doctors felt confident that they had got it all. And so we continued building the house, uh, and, but sadly by August of 06, he was in pain again, and uh, we learned that the cancer had come back. So it was on to more surgery and chemo and every kind of acupuncturist and healing modality we could find. And we were so sure he would get better, but he kept getting thinner and weaker uh, no matter what we tried. Uh, so by fall of 06, we'd actually moved into the house, uh, but at that point, Rick's life had really gotten constricted uh, to the bathroom and the bedroom as far as he could shuffle. The tumor was growing again and where they had taken out the kidney, and his legs had swelled up with fluid, so it made it hard for him to walk. So in my life before cancer, I felt like we had each roamed this big geography of places and activities and things to do in a bustle of motion. And now it felt like our lives had gotten really compressed, as if through an hourglass. We were just forced to drop all pretenses, all clutter, and live in truth. So all the things to do were just pared down to the essentials. What will it take to support life? And how can I love you today? In early February, we had a long day at the hospital as Rick was getting a blood transfusion. He was having trouble breathing, so they had him on oxygen. And by the time the transfusion was done, it took most of the day. All the other patients who were in that area getting IVs and chemo had all, had all gone home. So Rick took off the oxygen, and he stood up to leave and put his coat on. And then he suddenly yelled, I need air. And he ripped his coat off in a panic. He was terrified and anxious. Um, not being able to breathe was one of his real fears. He was claustrophobic, so he always needed an aisle seat, and he hated wearing ties. Uh, so the nurse ran over and got the oxygen back on quickly. And I was scared, wondering, should we have him stay in the hospital? Should we go home? So I conferred with the nurses, and they said they could get us an oxygen machine set up at home within an hour uh, so I went back to Rick and asked what he would prefer, and he really wanted to go home. So very slowly, we got him out to the car, and we were both nervous driving home. It was about a half hour as the late blue light, last blue light in that day faded. And I was worried about getting him from the car to the house. There was snow on the ground, and another time he had fallen, and I couldn't pick him up. So I called ahead to our new neighbors, Arthur and Robin, this wonderful couple who live next door. And I asked if they could help me get Rick in the house. When we pulled in the driveway, it was dark. Arthur was already there, bless him, with the lights on. And he was outside waiting with a wheelchair for Rick. So we together got Rick into, out of the car, into the chair, over the snow, to this wheelchair ramp. 
and Arthur was behind him and he was slowly pushing Rick and I was in front lifting his legs, his heavy legs up, up this snowy ramp. And Rick was so in control. He was just so firmly telling us what to do, when he needed space, when to move. So we took it step by step slowly until he was safely inside. And I said, you did it. So Arthur and I kept our distance to give Rick some space and ease his claustrophobia. And he was a little bit leaning forward to catch his breath. And he slowly took some deep breaths. And then he looked up at Arthur and he said, Arthur, how are you? <laughs> With genuine interest. And Arthur replied, and then Rick said, and how's Robin? <laughs> so after Arthur left, I knelt down next to Rick, and I looked him in the face, and I said, I am so moved by your strength to do what you just did. I know how terrifying that was for you, and it was an incredible moment of courage to witness. And I could tell he, too, was so proud that he overcame his fear. And he was really touched that I saw and noticed it. How can I love you today is to say I see you. I'm here. In those moments facing loss after loss, I love you was this steady baseline underneath everything. When I reached out to hold Rick's hand in the night when he was in pain, it was there. When he told me I was beautiful about 20 times a day, it was there. When we commiserated about how hard this all was, it was there. The next morning, his condition worsened, and we had to get an ambulance and get him back to the hospital, now in the intensive care unit. He was sitting up in a recliner, and he had an oxygen mask on, and his breathing was a bit labored. And we had learned the cancer at this point had spread to his lungs. Jack, his good friend of over 20 years, was there with us most of the day. In the early evening, I was sitting next to Rick, and he took my hand, and he kissed it through the oxygen mask. And then he pulled off the mask, and he said, Beth, I love you. And then he looked at Jack, who was really like a brother to him, and he said, Jack, I love you. And then he looked at the nurse and he said, you I'm not so sure about yet. <laughs> and then he pulled the mask off again. And his voice is really weak, but he said this so emphatically. He said, some people think that saying I love you all the time is silly, but I think it is soulful and necessary. And those were his last words over the next day or so, he went in and out of consciousness until he took his last peaceful, sacred breath. I love you. I see you. I'm here. How can I love you today? That was the essence of what came through that hourglass. That was her first first-person storytelling. <laughs> you set the bar awfully high. <laughs> Tom Osper grew up in New Jersey, but always dreamed of climbing the White Mountains, so he moved to New Hampshire, and with his adventurous wife, raised his family of five kids on stories of the out-of-doors. For years, his kids begged to hear these stories. Then one day, they grew up, moved out, and encouraged him to share them with others. So now Tom tells stories on stages in Boston and Portsmouth and beyond. He loves the way people get excited when they share in an adventure. There is something primal about storytelling that is embedded in our brains, he says. Storytelling transports us into feelings and, and emotions in an experience that we all can share. Tom has hiked the Appalachian Trail and camps and canoes every chance that he gets. Though a software techie guy, he loves getting lost both in dreams and in the woods. Hence his title, Adirondack Dreams. Tom, come on up.
So I was 12 years old, 76 pounds, skinny, and I found myself standing in a huge field of grass looking at the clouds, big white clouds, going up and up, and I was wondering if they were the kind that made thunder. And I thought I heard something, but I noticed the hawks just gliding along on them. And I wished I could be like that, you know, and look at the mountains in the distance and maybe see what I was like, little people were like. And I heard that voice again, and I saw a spot in the sky, and it was getting bigger and bigger. And I, I put my hand up in front of the sun, and then, whap! Next thing I knew, I was coming to looking at the feet of my baseball team. They were looking down at me and the baseball and shaking their head. <laughs> Daydreaming again? It, it's been a constant theme. I grew up alone with my best friend, my dog, Prince. And although nobody else could see my invisible dog, he was my best friend, and we would go on adventures behind couches, and, and we'd climb on tables, and things would break, and I'd always get blamed because the adults just couldn't see Prince. And, and my mom made me a really nice robe for the nativity scene when I was older, and then they couldn't find me because I was filling my pockets full of interesting leaves and bugs. Well, I think by 12, my dad finally had had it, and he sent me to an all-boys camp for eight weeks in the summer. <laughs> and it was between the shores of Lake Champlain and the Adirondacks. It was a beautiful place. They had the other fellow first as their uh, motto, and we played sports in the morning, basketball and soccer, and in the afternoons, we'd play more sports, and then there was individual sports like, like tennis and riflery and archery. And, but on the way back from the fields, my favorite was to stop at a small cabin on the campus that had an A on the top made out of birch bark. And it was called the Adventure Hut. And I would volunteer to stack the paddles and and shake out the tents and refold them and, and look at the shelves with the big pots on them and the, and the hooks on the wall with all the backpacks. But it was a loss because I was too young to go on the adventures. Next year, I'd be able to go. So I wouldn't be able to go this year. It was the end of the summer, and I'd have to wait. It was the end of the summer, and our teams were in championships, and so we were playing extra hard in the morning and extra hard in the afternoon and eating a lot, and the campfire that day, and the vespers, and taps, and I hit the hay, and I had the most vivid dream. In this dream, somebody came and said, would you like to go canoeing? And I just smiled and nodded. And I felt like I was floating in the blankets, back and forth. But then I was awash in red light. And the red light seemed to be coming from across on the wall of a hospital. And there were people going up and down through the double doors. And, and I was afraid. And, and I turned away. And, and then I felt like there was a, a pounding. And, and I, saw, I saw I was on a bench, a green cushioned bench with mahogany slats beside me, and, and there was a wake behind me. Yeah, I was in this sea of blackness with stars shining on it. And then there was this granite, gray granite island in midst of the darkness that I had to climb and climb. And, and there were stairs going up to a, a house on stilts. And it seemed to go on forever. And I went through a trap door. And then it was like, bright and loud, and, and there were music, and I saw legs dancing, and, and it was just too much, so I, I covered my ears and turned away, and, and now it was really quiet. And I was, I was rocking back and forth, and there was a moon on the water that went on forever, and, and the, 
Pine trees shooting up into the sky seemed like, like daggers with their shadows, and, and the paddles were making white swirls in the blackness. And then I was looking into a swirling pot of cocoa, and in the pot of cocoa there was a mouse swimming around and around. I could see its beady eyes and its tail going around and around, and I, I felt bad, but I was afraid, and I saw my hand reaching in, and, and it scampered up into some logs that were overhead, and, and I tried to reach up and scratch them, and, and then I heard scratching, and it, it was the bony hands of a big, fat raccoon holding a cup of cocoa, and, and I tried to ask him something, but I couldn't remember what it was I wanted to say, and, and he just stared at me through those those masked eyes, and, and I was in among a big sea of sleeping bags, and I turned over, and everything was black again. The next day, I realized I must have slept in. It was bright, but I hadn't heard the bugle, and I, there was no breakfast cannon that usually goes off, and, and I opened my eyes, and, and sitting next to me, was a big fat leader with a cup of cocoa. And he said to me that there had been a really serious accident and they had to bring somebody to the hospital. But they really wanted me to come on this canoe trip. So they picked me up in the middle of the night and brought me there. I sat up. I was on the edge of a lean-to. In front of me, there was a fireplace with a pot. And there were boys standing around, and there was a river going by with 12 canoes. I was ecstatic. The, the boys were waving and smiling, and they wanted me to be there. And now I realized that my dream had come true, and that it was I was not alone in my desire to be camping. And, and I just wanted to jump up and shout. And I said, don't drink the cocoa, it's got a mouse in it. <laughs> Thank you. Though Kate Braun grew up in the Midwest, she has lived in New Hampshire for the past 20 years. <clears throat> During her career, she has worked throughout the country leading creative dramatics for children, directing college theater productions, working as an arts administrator, and recently teaching acting classes at a Boston community college. Trained as an actor, Kate has worked with various local theater companies, including Threshold Stage, Act One, New Hampshire Theater Project, and the Seacoast Rep. She enjoys New England with all that it has to offer, but expects to one day return to her family roots in the Midwest, where this story begins. Her title, Life, Loss, Love. Kate. I grew up in a family of six, including two brothers, a sister, a mother, and a father who was really a family man to the core. Dad was a devoted husband and a truly loving father. Dad adored mom. They'd be on their way out for the evening and mom would appear in a dress that she had worn many times before. He was always so complimentary, telling her how nice she looked, and, and then asking, is that new? <laughs> or she'd make something for dinner that we'd had countless times before. He'd say how good it was, and then ask, have we had this before? He was so enthusiastic and appreciative it was as though nothing mom did ever got old in his eyes. 
dad loved being a dad, seemed to relish just spending time with us kids. Just about every Sunday, he would take us somewhere fun, the zoo, the museum, the park to fly kites. He'd take us bowling or play tennis, take us to sporting events. He was a kid at heart, but more than that, I think he just loved spending time with us. Dad was loyal and uncomplicated, and he kept to a fairly simple routine. He served at 6 a.m. Mass every morning before going into work. Working as an accountant, he kept the same desk job nearly all his career and took a brown bag lunch to work nearly every day. He made a point of the whole family sitting down to dinner every night, after which he would help mom with the dishes. He took our dog, Boris, for a walk every morning and every night. And on Saturdays, he would do his chores around the house, washing the cars, mowing the grass, uh, polishing our shoes, or stocking the fridge with our favorite soda pop. Dad didn't have a pretentious bone in his body. He took everyone at face value, and, and anyone who came to the door would get the same greeting. He'd open the door, and no matter who it was, he'd say, come on in, want something to drink? <laughs> he had a wonderful sense of humor and loved making people laugh, sometimes at his own expense. He had these corny sayings that he'd say over and over again. At the dinner table, he'd ask for one of us to pass him the bean salad. He'd take the bowl and say, with relish, every time, yeah. where have you been, salad? <laughs> <laughs> when he said goodbye, he'd often add, if I don't see you in the future, I'll see you in the pasture. <laughs> one of the last things I remember Dad saying to me was, Catherine, I'm going to wash your mouth out with soap. I was 24 years old at the time, and I was away at college, finishing up a degree in English and drama education. Mom and Dad had uh, driven up to uh, campus, a 90-minute drive, to see me perform in a theater production. Uh, I played a character who transitioned from an enthusiastic high school cheerleader eventually to a somewhat jaded and disillusioned adult, prone to using foul language. <laughs> when my folks came backstage after the show, Dad seemed to relish in playing along in the role of the blustering father, shocked at his daughter using foul language for the first time. It was just a few days later that Mom called with the news that Dad had suffered a heart attack and was in the hospital on life support. I still had a couple more weekends of performances to get through, so I called the director and told her of my family situation. Now, she was a, a wonderful teacher and a, a mentor of mine by the name of Gloria. Uh, she listened and invited me out to dinner that very night. Anyone in the theater industry knows the adage, the show must go on. You know, so much work goes into a theater production that to cancel it is, huge, is a huge decision, affecting not only the cast and the crew, but every audience member. And Gloria, even though she was devoted to the theater, that night at dinner, she chose compassion over the theater's bottom line. She knew the importance of family and made clear that I had her full support, whatever decided. But the decision was up to me. If I needed to be home with my family at that time, she would simply cancel the remaining performances, no questions asked. I talked it over with mom and we agreed that I would just split my time between uh, home and school. So over the next two weeks, my sister drove me back and forth between the hospital and the theater. 
Dad never regained consciousness. With each passing day, the doctors informed us that the chances of Dad waking up were less and less likely. They eventually weaned him off of life support, and we signed a DNR. Dad had been in the hospital roughly three weeks before he finally stopped breathing. As difficult as it was, those three weeks afforded us the chance to at least say goodbye. Well, time passed, and uh, we adjusted to life without Dad. It was roughly 10 years later when I found myself involved with another theater production, uh, this time as the director. The show was just two nights from opening. I was at rehearsal when... uh, Someone from campus security came in and informed me that one of my actors, Charlotte, would not be at rehearsal that night. She was recovering after a failed suicide attempt earlier that day. Of course, my formal theater training had taught me that the show must go on, but Gloria had taught me something more. She had taught me to show compassion, and that understanding was far more important than the theater production's bottom line. So, taking my cue from Gloria, I invited Charlotte out to dinner the next night. As her director, I told her that uh, she was doing a wonderful job in the role, and I couldn't imagine anyone else filling her shoes. But as someone who cared about her, I said, that her well-being was far more important than anything else. And I left the decision up to her. Whether she felt it was in her best interest to go on with the show or not, it was her call. I would support her either way, no questions asked. Well, she didn't hesitate to commit to the show. She came to the final dress rehearsal that night, and throughout the run of the show, which was a comedy, She turned in stellar performances with impeccable comic timing. Just as my theater experience had helped me through a difficult time 10 years earlier, I hoped that this experience would help Charlotte through and give her a renewed focus. It was at one of the final performances. Uh, I was out in the lobby during intermission, and I noticed Uh, a woman standing by herself off to the side. After a while, she approached me and introduced herself as Charlotte's mother. She said that she just wanted to thank me for taking the time to take an interest in her daughter and that my taking Charlotte out to dinner that night made all the difference. We never really know how we'll get through difficult times until we're in the midst of them. And somehow we dig deep down and find the strength to carry on. The thing to remember is that we don't have to go it alone. We're all in this together. Sure, we can't take away someone else's pain, but what we can do is offer them our love and support. Thank you. Amen. Andy Davis got his start as a storyteller, telling comic tales by candlelight in Mexican refugee camps 25 years ago. He has since broadened and refined his craft and has entertained audiences as far north as County Antrim, as far east as Paris, as far south as Bamako, and as far west as San Diego. By day, he keeps the world safe for free thinkers and change makers as co-director of the World Fellowship Center, a peace and justice-oriented family camp and retreat center in the White Mountains. He performs as a storyteller whenever the opportunity arises to tell multicultural tales, tall tales, shaggy dog stories, and the occasional personal tale. Also, several years ago, he wrote an incredible Earth Day 
essay on W.E.B. Du Bois, which you can find on the World Fellowship Center's website blog, which I heartily endorse and recommend. His story tonight is over the fence. Andy, come on up. Thanks. Hi. My mother never wanted us to forget that she had a life before my father and that she had been adventurous in her youth. I never did because her stories stuck with me. For example, the story of the time she and her cousin snuck into Corbin Park. For those of you who don't know, Corbin Park is an ultra-exclusive 26,000-acre game preserve for the super-rich in western New Hampshire that borders on my mother's hometown of Claremont. It was founded by a gilded-age robber baron who then stocked it with bison, elk, moose, Eurasian wild boar, and who knows what else. There's only 30 members, and they and their guests are the only ones allowed in. Even people who have lived right next to the park for their entire lives have never been inside. But one weekend morning, my mother and her cousin Joan bicycled to the end of a road that dead-ended at the park, and they threw down their bikes reached out, pulled themselves up, and went over the fence. And they hadn't been inside very long at all when they heard some snuffling and snorting and looked up to see a wild boar coming right at them through the trees. And they managed to swing up on low-hanging branches and climb out of reach. But that boar circled them for what seemed like a very long time before it continued on its way. And then the two girls jumped down and ran and scrambled to the side of the fence without wild boars. My mother was independent all her life. But it was after she finally left my father and once she retired from nursing that she really came into her own and got to set her own schedule and do exactly what she wanted. Until her late 80s, when she found out she had a ticking time bomb inside her, an aortic aneurysm. And not long after that, she found out she had a golf ball-sized tumor on her right lung. So at that point, she was pretty much checkmated, and she was in and out of the hospital after that. She still managed to stay at her own apartment until about the last month, and we knew that whatever happened, we wanted her to come be with us when she died. In fact, my wife Andrea and I invited her to come live with us, but she said, Andy, I don't want to live under the rules of any other family member. I'd rather go into a nursing home. But uh, she did end up staying with us for about eight days, the end of November, 16 months ago, when she was waiting for a bed to open up at the North Conway Nursing Home. She didn't want to stay in the corner bedroom that she said was too cold, so she camped out on the couch in front of the fire and cuddled with Darby the Beagle, and even though she was getting weaker, she was pretty content. We thought she might end up deciding to stay with us after all. But late one evening in early December, I came home from a gig to find Andrea and our 18-year-old daughter, Fiona, crouched next to the couch while, where mom was writhing and thrashing and looking for a way out. She said, get a gun and shoot me. 
throw me in the road and run me over with a truck. Suffocate me with a pillow. Do something. Well, we want to do something, but we couldn't do any of that. Then she said, I want morphine. Well, that was a wish we could make come true. <laughs> so Andrea got on the phone with Julie, our friend who runs the local hospice, and Julie said the only place we'd get the good drugs at this hour of the night would be the ER. But she knew we wanted, we didn't want mom admitted, so she said we'd have to be clear we were there for palliative care only. And so when I told mom that we were going on a morphine run, she wasn't as grumpy as she otherwise would have been <laughs> about getting bundled up and pushed into the car. But it was a long drive, 25 minutes to the hospital. She couldn't get comfortable. And when we got there, Andrea ran up to go to the reception desk, and Fiona and I got a wheelchair and wheeled mom into the waiting room. And she had begun to calm, and her breath began to slow down, and then she seemed to be dozing. And we just held her hands and told her we were going to get her relief. And then Andrea came and said we could go right into the first examination room on the right. So we wheeled her in there, and we sat down and held her and kept telling her we loved her and talking to her, and she got calmer. She was very peaceful. And then the doctor came in and checked her pulse and unbuttoned her top buttons and got the stethoscope out. And then a moment later he said, folks, I think she's gone. And at that, that point, I panicked because we were just there for the drugs and their mom had gone and died in the hospital. So I said, Doc, we just want to take her home and have a good old-fashioned wake. How about that? Can we just leave with her? And he looked at us like he had never quite encountered this before. But he said, yeah, I guess so. So then he stepped out of the room, and we made for the door. We weren't going to wait around for a second opinion. <laughs> and we slowed down and nonchalantly rolled by the reception desk, but then we gathered speed as we got through the glass doors and went around to the passenger side of the car. And Fiona pulled the wheelchair up close, and I opened the door. And then I got one arm around mom's back and one under her legs, and I started to lift while Fiona started to back up with the wheelchair. But then mom's head slumped forward, and Fiona said, Oh, Daddy, as she started to slip through my arms. But by sheer force of will, I caught her with my knees and shoved her into the car and got her more or less dignified sitting up. But then her mouth was hanging open in a most disturbing way, and I heard again, Oh, Daddy! And I rolled up a towel and tucked it under her chin and then told Fiona to go back in and see how things were going inside. <laughs> and Fiona got inside and a nurse looked up and she said, Sweetie, is your grandma still here? And Fiona said, should she be? <laughs> the answer was decidedly in the affirmative. So Fiona came running back out and said, Daddy, they say you have to bring her back in. So she got me a wheelchair. We got it back into position. And I knew this was going to be a little bit more difficult because gravity wouldn't be with me this time. And my mother was never cooperative in life, and she'd be less so now. Things happen to bodies when they've been sitting for a while. But I managed to get 
around her and I picked her up and even though appendages went in unexpected directions, <laughs> I got her back in the wheelchair, more or less upright, and we wheeled her back inside. <laughs> right back to that same first exam room on the right. And the wheels had barely stopped turning when Andrea came in and said, they say we can go. <laughs> Apparently they just needed her inside when the paperwork was signed. So we wheeled her back out on that path that we had gotten very accustomed to. We rolled her around to the passenger side, got her into the passenger seat, sitting up, and we headed for home. One big happy family. Just happy that mom was a little more comfortable on this leg of the trip. <laughs> we got to the house and I picked her up and carried her inside. The patriarchal archetype of a young man carrying his bride across the threshold <laughs> for the first time. And we went straight to that back corner bedroom that would be conveniently cold. And Andrea and I washed mom. And it happens that a few days before, Andrea had got mom an outfit that she quite liked. And she said, I'm going to save that one for a special occasion. <laughs> so we dressed mom up in her brand new special occasion outfit and laid her on the bed and folded her hands across her tummy and she looked beautiful. By then, my sister had arrived, and the nieces came along not long after that. And the following morning, we told local friends, and they came to pay their respects. And in the early afternoon, the hospice choir arrived, and we all crowded into that little bedroom and enfolded mom with our love. And by the magic of Skype, even my brother and his family were present, sitting on their couch in Dakar, Senegal, while Darby the Beagle ran back and forth and the choir sang. My mother's last adventure had been a little bit bumpy. But I was just left with a feeling of admiration that she had decided it was time to go, and she had gone. Even though she wasn't one of those people who has a sense of certainty and security about what comes next. So it took guts to throw herself in that direction. But she didn't care what was waiting for her in that wild, mysterious preserve that no one can tell us about. She reached out, pulled herself up, and went over the fence. Thanks so much to all of tonight's amazing storytellers and to our fabulous audience. Coming up next, we do have an interview by David Frainer of Beth Tenor. But first, let me tell you a few things. Our next True Tales Live show will be Tuesday, April 30th, with the theme of Baby Steps. We still have space for more storytellers for that and for all of our 2019 shows. You can email us at truetaleslivenh1, the number, at gmail.com to join in. If you are interested in telling a story and would like some help with your piece, we would love to have you join us at one of our monthly uh, storytelling workshops. They're held here at PPM-TV, 280 Marcy Street in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, on the first Tuesday of most months, 7.30 to 9. They're free and open to the public, and the next one is April 2nd. 
Watch us on Comcast Channel 98, Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. and Saturdays at 1 p.m., and anytime as video on demand. You can go to our website, truetaleslivenh.org, for easy access to all of those options. Just click buttons. It's much easier than it used to be. Let's thank some of those who make this show possible. John Lovering, Pat Spaulding, Steve Koval, David Frainer, Bill Humphreys, and Chad Cordner. I'm Amy Antonucci, and until our next True Tales Live show, on behalf of all of us, thank you so much for being here, listening and watching. And now we go to David Frainer and Beth Tenner.